Take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I want, we're not, we're not going to veer off Matthew 7, but we're going to turn to Luke 7 for this opening illustration. Luke chapter 7, I want you to take a look at this, this moment in the ministry of the life of Christ. In Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 32 and 33, we see where Jesus is invited by a Pharisee named Simon to dine. And invites him to his home. Now, in case you're wondering, I'm open to dine in your home at any time. The only thing I don't eat is liver. Anything else is uh, I will consume. But anyway, he was invited. Just thought I'd throw that little commercial in there. By the way, my Christmas present gift wish list is out in the foyer. Just go ahead and check that off and just go ahead. and Anyway, <clears throat> back to the original story. <laughs> And so Jesus made his way to Simon, the Pharisee's home, and he reclined at the table. He kicked back like was the custom, low table, arm back on the table, feet spread out. And you know the story well, while he was there, a lady who was not only unwanted, but who was uninvited, somehow managed to find her way into the room where Jesus was reclining. There was a lot of hustle and bustle more than likely to try to get all the preparations ready and there were plenty of people in and out of the room. So she was able to sort of sneak her way into the place where Jesus was and she was on a mission. She wanted to see Jesus. That is all that she wanted. She didn't want any food. She didn't want anything else other than to see Jesus. And she finally makes her way through the crowded room and finds herself kneeling over the feet of Christ. Luke informs us that while she was there, she was so overwhelmed with emotion that she began to weep. Her passion and her love and her thanks for Jesus, her Savior, were so overwhelming that the tears began to roll down her cheeks and onto his feet. That must have gone on for a few moments when she finally recognized and realized what was happening. I'm sure Jesus felt it right off the bat. I don't know about you, but he didn't move his feet. He left them there. I find that pretty cool, don't you? And as the tears began to roll off her cheeks onto his feet, she did what only any good lady would do. She took her hair down and began to wipe his feet with her hair to dry them off. Well, still unnoticed by most everyone in the room other than Jesus, she then, following that, opened up a very expensive, very perfumed type perfume out of a very expensive alabaster jar and proceeded to anoint the feet of Jesus with this, with this beautiful scent. Undoubtedly, the scent began to fill the room instantly, and all of a sudden, the unnoticed woman became noticed, not just by Jesus, but by everyone else in the room especially the host. The host saw her, and in his mind he thought, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, and he would not allow himself to be touched by her at all. Luke says that Jesus knew what he was thinking. And so Jesus turns to Simon the Pharisee, and he says, Simon, may I tell you a story? He said, certainly, teacher, tell me a story. So Jesus tells him a very short story. He said, Simon, let's say that there are two debtors and they owe a debt to the same individual. Neither one are able to pay the debt, but he cancels both 
debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Which one of those debtors being excused or relieved from the debt would love him the most? It's a no-brainer. Simon the Pharisee is a very educated man. He says, without question, without hesitation, I suppose the one who's been forgiven the most. And then Jesus then begins this interesting dialogue beginning with verse 44. He then turned to the woman, but he spoke to Simon. He's turning and looking the woman, but he's speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? She entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, the sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He completely ignores what they're saying. And he says then to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, the reason I bring this up in our study of Matthew 7, 1 through 5 today is because of the pharisaical traditions of the day. You see, the Pharisees had set themselves up in this self-righteous religious practice in which they were following not the principles of God, but the traditions of man. They had an exterior righteousness while the inside of their hearts were anything but righteous. And because they had this exterior concept of righteousness, they then sat in judgment over everyone else who was unable to live up to the standard that they had set. And so they set themselves up as the judges, the jury, and the executioners of everyone who could not follow these traditions. Simon the Pharisee is like all the other Pharisees. He took a look at this woman, and in his self-righteousness condemned her. And Jesus is trying to point out to Simon, he's saying, Simon, not only is she a sinner in need of forgiveness, but you too are a sinner in need of forgiveness and grace. It's not that she sinned 500 times more or 10 times more than you have. That's not what he's trying to point out. He's saying that you think that you don't need forgiveness, but you in fact need forgiveness just like her because you're unable to pay even the small debt that you think that you owe to the Father. You and your self-righteousness. And what Jesus is combating in the Sermon on the Mount are these Pharisees who have set themselves up as the judges, the jury, and the executioners in their own self-righteousness, believing themselves to live up to the standard that they're forcing upon others while looking down and condemning those who are not living up to the standard that they believe, which isn't a reality, that they're living up to the principles and the precepts of God. This passage in Matthew 7, Jesus is addressing Pharisees like Simon, who in their self-righteousness believe themselves to be superior than anyone else and everyone else. We are living up to the standard, but no one else is. And this, I am afraid, is also a modern-day problem for many in the church today. We, if we're not careful 
can elevate ourselves to a position that is not rightfully ours. And we can assume and we can grab the gavel and we can then become judge, juries, and executioners upon everyone else that doesn't live up to the standard that we somehow have convinced ourselves that we're living up to when in reality we are not. And Jesus is about to confront, he's about to address that attitude in Matthew chapter 7. Now as we get ready to study this passage, I want to say this right off the bat. This is the most misrepresented, misquoted, and the most misused passage, I'm convinced, in the modern day church among most believers today. And it is used, it's misquoted, it's misappropriated primarily to justify someone's lifestyle choices. And if anyone comes to them and says, you're not living up to the standard that God has said in his word, they then try to quote this passage saying, you can't judge me. You can't tell me what's right and wrong. Jesus said, do not judge, so don't judge me. And they somehow have taken this passage so far out of context to misrepresent and misproclaim what Jesus is saying in this text in order to justify a lifestyle that is a complete reproach to the standard, to the principles, and the precepts of God. We do, as we're going to study, have a right as believers with the proper attitude and the proper motive to then hold up a standard of right versus wrong and call people to repentance for those who do not live according to that which is right. We do. So let's take a look at the passage, and I want us to understand what Jesus is wanting from Simon the Pharisee is exactly the same thing he wants from us, a self-reflection before taking action. Now notice in the sermon title, before taking action, you can act, but before you act righteously, you must self-reflect and determine your own spiritual condition. And am I in need of grace? Am I in need of forgiveness? Do I need to repent? And once I have reflected upon myself and I have reconciled my relationship with the Lord, I then, with the right attitude, with the right motive, and with the right intention, I can approach and I can act. So let's talk about this important subject in Matthew chapter 7. Now, go to the text with me. I want to look at six very quick points this morning as we address what Jesus is saying. A disciple, here's the principle. A disciple must reflect and reconcile his walk before helping anyone else. You need to write that down. I think this is the the main point of what Jesus is saying here, that a disciple first must reflect and then reconcile his walk before helping anyone else in their walk. And here's the dilemma. Many times we're not as concerned about our walk as we are about everyone else's walk. And we have a tendency to overlook our sins while we want to straighten out everyone else's sins. We have a tendency as a church not to deal with our sins, but want to enforce the world that we live in to deal with their sins. And so Jesus is saying that disciples simply choose to address their walk first before seeking to help anyone else. Now, the six steps begin with, first of all, I must resist condemnation. I must resist this whole aspect of condemning others. Notice Jesus begins this important address by saying, judge 
not. It's important to understand what the word judge means in this text. The word judge means to draw a quick conclusion based upon an exterior observation. It's to draw a quick conclusion based upon an exterior observation. I am observing you as you're living, as you're choosing, as you're acting, as you're doing, and based upon what I see on the outside, I then draw a very quick conclusion in regard to your life, and I make a snap decision, and I condemn what you're doing. It's a quick analysis that draws a quick conclusion that quickly seeks condemnation. Where I become, I assume, a position that's not mine. I take the gavel in the judge's seat and I become the judge, the jury, and the executioner all in the same frame of reference. It is condemnation. And it is a condemnation that comes with an attitude of self-righteousness. Jesus is addressing self-righteousness. And as he addresses self-righteousness, it's described of a person who is judging from a position of, I am right with God. I am right in my own standing. I am self-righteous. And therefore, I then, because of my own righteousness, have the privilege and assume the position of being the judge, the jury, and the executioner, and I condemn those. It is an unmerciful prejudice upon other people's sins. Now, let me tell you what it isn't before we tell you what it really is. What it isn't is basically, and what it doesn't say basically is, that you and I do not have the opportunity, the privilege, or the right to evaluate someone else's life and, and to judge it. It's not what it's saying at all. And we're going to look at that in a minute because you see in the very end of the text that we're going to be dealing with today, Jesus says in that text that we are to then assist or help those who are walking in sin. We are to facilitate those to walk in righteousness. But just let me read a couple other passages. In Matthew chapter seven, what we're gonna be dealing with next week while we have and observe the Lord's Supper, and I invite you to come. Let's be, it's gonna be a great time together as we observe the Lord's Supper together. And we observe this very sacred, holy thing called the Lord's Supper or communion. Notice Seven six. I, I, I'm going to single this passage out next week because uh, in my study, I think it's really that important. He says in Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your per- pearls before pigs, lest they trample underfoot and turn to attack you. Does that sound like judgment to you? Does that sound like you're, an, you're, you're making an analysis, an observation, and you're looking at someone and you're recognizing them as dogs and pigs? What does that mean? Well, come back next week and I'll tell you. <laughs> John chapter 7, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Jesus tells his disciples to judge. Well, I thought he said, do not judge. So what does he mean? Judge or not judge? It's about the attitude. It's about the motive. It's about the intention. It's about the way that we do it. It's not from a self-righteous position, but it, but it, it is a position of a disciple who recognizes and understands, but, but by the grace of God go I, and I am in a right position myself with God, and so therefore I can determine what is right and what is wrong. Notice 1 Timothy 5.20 says, as those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. 
2 Timothy 4, 2 says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Hebrews 6, 4 says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits so that you see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. What he's not saying is, is that we as believers in Christ, as his disciples, do not have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. We do. And we have been commissioned by him to hold up the truth and to resist that which is wrong. Not only in the world, but in the church and in our personal lives. And so what he's not saying is we're not to hold each other accountable. That we don't have a responsibility one to the other to make sure that each other walks worthy of the calling for which we have been called. We do. But what he is saying here is that we need, when we do that, we need to not judge, not condemn. Don't condemn them. The word not is a double negative. And what he's saying by this double negative is, is absolutely, positively, in no way, fashion, shape, or form, are we to assume a superior position than someone else whom we happen to see are falling into sin or who are giving into weakness or who are straying from God and from a self-righteous position come, we need to do it with the right attitude, with the right heart, and do it in the right way. But we must gently come, correct, and rebuke, and help, and come alongside those believers who are weaker in the faith. So we must resist, at all cost, condemning one another. Secondly, we must realize then the consequences if we choose to condemn. Jesus is very quick to help us understand there are consequences when we approach someone with the wrong attitude and in the wrong way. He says... Second part of verse one, that you be not judged. He says, judge not or you will be judged. In other words, if I judge, if I assume this superior self-righteous position and I come looking down upon you, pretending to be righteous when I'm not really, and I try to correct you with the wrong attitude and the wrong heart and the wrong way, then I too am going to be judged as well. For he says in verse 2, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I find it interesting that judging others not only has an effect in that I'm going to be judged in response or in return, but judging others has an exchange program as well. Have you ever bought something and later on had to take it back and try to exchange it? It's a nightmare, isn't it? And uh, how many of you get things at Christmas time and after Christmas you go back for that exchange process? Don't you love that? No. There's an exchange here that's going on because I get what I give. There's a what I sow, I reap. And what I give, I get in return. 
And by the same judgment I pronounce on others, I'm going to get pronounced on me. And the measuring device that I use to measure others, to give me a superiority over them, is the same measurement that, that, that they are going to use when they judge me as well. But the reality here is not that others, I think, are going to judge me, but that God himself in that divine judgment, in his divine sovereignty, is going to use the measurement and the judgment that we inflict upon others. He's going to say, you know what? I would rather choose grace for you, my son, but because you've been so judgmental toward everyone else, I'm going to use the same judgment and the same measuring device that you've used on others to elevate yourself and to demote everyone else with your own self righteousness I'm going to use that to judge you that's what he's saying how would you like that how would you like God to judge you with the same judgment and with the same measurement that you use on everyone else that's what he's saying there are consequences to this self-righteous judgmental condemning attitude that we take upon ourselves and inflict upon others. So he says, resist condemnation. Realize the consequences when you do judge, but reevaluate, he says in verse three, reevaluate my spiritual condition. There's a there's an evaluation that needs to take place if you're going to assist or help a fallen brother or a fallen sister. Someone who's not really walking in and keeping in step with the spirit. Who's someone who is, who is yielding to the flesh. In order to do that, I, I, I need to be careful. I, I don't need to condemn them. And I need to make sure that when I approach them, I approach them you know, with the right standard and with the right judgment, the right attitude. But I need to look into a mirror, so to speak, is what James said. You look into a, a spiritual mirror and you evaluate your own condition. Before you straighten someone else out, look at your own life and evaluate your own life and see if there's anything in your own life that needs correction. Notice what he says in verse three, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? The word why is a rhetorical question and Jesus is about to use some, some humor here and we don't understand and get his humor sometimes. I understand that because sometimes you don't get my humor either. Ha ha ha. And he's using humor here. And, and he's using humor to explain and describe what he's trying to say. And, and he's saying, why? It's a rhetorical question that demands a yes. Why do you see the speck? Notice you see, you perceive. How do you perceive it? With your eyes, with your physical eyes. You are observing not the interior, the heart, are the motive, but you're judging based upon exteriors. You see the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, a speck is a very small thing. Now, the eye is not very big, is it? And big objects don't fit in there, do they? Like a fist or a softball. Contact, maybe. It's about as big as you could probably put in your eye, and it'll stay there. But this is even smaller than that. It is so small, in fact, that you are seeing the speck that's how judgmental you've become. You are judging the speck. You are looking so intently in their life and examining them so closely that you see a speck. How close do you have to get 
to your husband or your wife or your neighbor or your child to see a speck in their eye? How close? You ever had to do that? Take a look. And most of the time, you know, they're going like that. and You go, I can't see anything. Well, I know it's there because I feel it. Right? A speck is a very small thing. And he's saying, you are looking so intently on the exterior of this person. You are so criticizing and so scrutinizing every aspect about his or her life. I've seen couples do this. That's why they can't get along. You are criticizing the speck in their eye. While, he says, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. I don't like the B-U-T's in the Bible. Because it takes you one there and then it starts to jab me and you. However, he says, you do not. That is an absolute denial. The same aspect and the same intention of what he used, judge not. That's a command. Do not judge. Jesus said, don't condemn. That's a command. It's not for question. If you're a disciple, you follow, don't condemn. It's an absolute. Not not. Double negative. Under any circumstances, do not judge. He's saying, but you do not, you absolutely have not, even in the least, placed any effort on examining your own life. You've not taken a minute, a second, a single opportunity to look into your own life because if you would, you would see that in your life you have a log in your eye. What does he mean by log? I got a log over here. How would you like this in your eye? A log is a post like this that was used to, 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 for flooring, maybe an appearing beam or maybe something to hold up a roof. He's saying, you're worried about the speck in his or her eye, your brothers in Christ, when you've got one of these stinking things in your eye. Now, I don't know about you, but one of those would hurt. How how possible is it for you to ignore one of these in your eyeball? You, You can't overlook it, right? And yet he's saying here, you do not notice the log in your own eye. You are fixed upon their sin when you have completely and totally ignored the log in your own eye. Now, he's not talking about grander or bigger or more complex or, or, or nastier in the eyes of God. That's, that's not what he's saying here is he's saying that, that we, are, we are so nitpicky that we're focused on that in their life when we're ignoring the, in God's eyes, this, this self-righteousness in our own. You need to reevaluate your condition and determine what your spiritual condition is before you help anybody else out. Because number four, we need to reject then any form of compromise. It's interesting in verse four, notice what he says in this compromise. Or, here's another possibility. He's given us one possibility. Now he's given us a second possibility. Or, could it be possible, how can you say to your brother? Notice, you see it. Now what do you want to do? You want to say it. 
I see it. Now, I wanna, how, how, how long can you keep silent when you notice something about your spouse's life that needs correcting? Come on. I see some of you going like this. I know it's dark out there, but I can see the elbows. Yeah. Children do it to parents. Parents do it to children. Spouses do it to spouses. Brothers and sisters do it to brothers and sisters. Or how can you speak about that which you have noticed, that speck? How can you speak about it to your brother? Now, what are you speaking? I'm going to volunteer to help you, man. You haven't been asked for help. They didn't come to you and say, you know, I'm having some struggles with this and some hardships here and I'm struggling with this sin. Hey, brother, could you help me? Could you walk alongside me? Could you encourage me? Could you hold me accountable? It's not an invitation from them. You are volunteering for the position. Now we have, you know, a committee on committees coming up and some of you have been asked to volunteer for certain things and you've reluctant to do that. Wouldn't it be great to have so many volunteers to serve that we had more people to serve we had positions to serve? This is one position that, that, that's not hard to fill in the church. I volunteer to straighten everybody out. I do. I want to get up there and I want to tell everybody how the cow shoots the cat. But this is how you need to do it, man. This is it. You bunch of sinners. You... How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? The point that he's making here is that you are more concerned about the speck in your neighbor's eye, your brothers and sisters in Christ's eye, than you are about the log in your own eye. And he's about to use the word hypocrite. And this is really where I kind of get these, these two thoughts together here. A hypocrite is basically someone who is play acting. It is someone who's trying to masquerade as something that they are not an actor, trying to convince you that they are in the role of what they're trying to project so that you don't see the real them. You see this projection of what they want you to believe they are. And he calls them hypocrites. I'm convinced hypocrisy really starts in verse three and verse four, and it really crystallizes in verse four where these people are actually play acting because they are, they are, compromising in their own lives because they know that this big thing right here is, I, I know it's there, I can't ignore it, so I'm masquerading myself in this spirituality so that as I approach you, I'm hoping that you don't see my log because I'm trying to point out your speck. And so Jesus is saying, I need to reject this, this position of compromise here. I, I know it's here. I can't ignore it. I mean, it, it's, it's huge. So I'm just going to walk around and I'm going to interact with everybody and pretend like it's not even on my shoulder. It, you don't, it's not here. You just think it's here. No, not here. Have you known anybody like that? Have you known a believer like that? They talk spiritual, they act spiritual, they know all the verses, and they go to church, and they come to church on Sunday with this on their shoulder, and they, nobody sees this. I'm spiritual. 
I'm singing and I'm praying and I'm saying and I'm doing and the whole time. How do you get away with that? You find some kind of compromise. You got to negotiate with God because you don't want to let go of this. And Jesus is saying, hey, you've got to reject all forms of personal compromise. You, you've, got to, you, you've, got to, you've got to lay it down, which brings us to the point that I want, I want to make. It says in the next verse, I've got to repent of all known sin before I can help anyone in their sin. You hypocrite. You have been masquerading this whole time, pretending to be hyper-spiritual when the reality is your heart is not right. First, first, take the log out of your own eye. Look in the mirror. You got spinach on your teeth and everybody knows it. The problem is everybody's afraid to tell you you got spinach on your teeth. Because as soon as they do, you're going to bite their head off, man. Or you're just going to get all huffy and I'm going to quit. How dare them hold me accountable? Dadgummit, I want to live the life I want to live and claim Jesus and go to church down the street that'll let me choose my lifestyle and not one time ever convince me that I need to be convicted of sin in my life and get right with God. I got to take the log out of my own eye first. I need to admit that I've got a log in my eye. I've got to ask for forgiveness, call it by name, and I've got to abandon that sin to relinquish it. It says, take the log out, cast it out as if it were demonic. Cast it out, lift the burden, drop it and turn your back on it and walk away. Repent of all sin before you go to anyone else. And then, lastly, notice what he says. Then redeem other believers. The last part of verse 5 talks about redemption. Because we have brothers and sisters who, who, who have been walking around with, with maybe specks or logs in their lives, and we have a responsibility to go to them and say, you know what? Your lifestyle choice isn't right. Your actions are not reflective of the word. You're not thinking clearly. Uh, You're following false prophets, false teachings. And he says, and then you will see clearly. When I take that out of my eye, I can then see clearly. It's It's amazing how a clean life gives you a whole different perspective. The self-righteousness is gone because you recognize that the same saving grace that saved you is the same saving grace that saves everyone else. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, helping another sinner who needs to be saved by grace or helping another saint who needs a special dose of the redemptive grace of God in their life. And I'm walking alongside of you with the right motive, with the right intentions, with the right desires and in the right way, speaking and encouraging you. And I guarantee you when you're right with God and you see clearly not only in your life, but in other people's lives and you approach them to try to help them, don't expect acceptance, expect rejection rather than acceptance. And he says, 
to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Interesting that there's a passage in John as we close where Jesus is moving through the streets and a group of Pharisees catch a woman in the act of adultery. In the act. That means they had to know what was going on before it started. They had to wait for the opportune time. And the scripture seems to indicate that when they burst the door open, they grabbed the woman. She was so scantily dressed that by the time they flung her out of the room and drug her to the streets, she was holding on but nothing probably than a sheet to cover up her nakedness. I don't know why they didn't drag the man too. He's just as guilty as she was. And they flung her in front of Jesus. And they said, the scripture says we should stone her. What do you say? And you know what he said. You without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, the oldest to the youngest, the oldest first, because I think the older and the longer you live, the more you recognize that it were not for grace, you'd be in serious trouble. Because when I was younger, I was awful cocky and very self-righteous. And so were you. And the older ones first from the youngest dropped their stones one at a time and they walked away. And he said, where are those who were here to condemn you? Why couldn't they throw the stones? Because their hearts were not right. You can't throw stones when your heart's not right. You can't help anyone when your life is not right. You can't be the disciple to assist other disciples in discipleship process unless you are right with God. I didn't say 100% right, but I think you need to be constantly, continually reevaluating, reflecting, repenting, and reconciling your life to God. And so as you're moving, you are able to see clearly the, the purpose and the objectives of God, and you're able to walk alongside of others. We have a responsibility not just parents to children, but disciple to disciple to hold each other accountable for the lives that we live for him. What happened to that? And some of the things that our brothers and sisters are doing are not right. And some of you had family members this holiday season were in your home and their lives were not right. And for the sake of the family, you overlooked all kinds of stuff. I don't know how a parent who has a gay child, how you deal with that and, and, and consolidate that. I don't know because I don't live, I don't have that in my family. I, I, my, I've been, we've been blessed but I know that, that there are dysfunctions in, in families out there and dysfunctions in the church. It's hard, isn't it? And as soon as you try to address or to help or to correct, even if you have the right motive, the right heart, the right intention, you evaluated yourself, how are you going to receive, how are you going to be received when you step up to the plate and you swing that bat? You may lose a family member. You may lose a friend. You may lose a coworker. You may lose a fellow brother and sister in Christ. 
But as long as your heart's right and your motive's right and, and you said it right and you've done it right, you're not responsible for their actions or their reactions to your obedience to the Lord. It's hard to follow in the footsteps of Christ. And he never promised it'd be easy. So as we close, here's our final question. What does my self-reflection reveal about me? Not about you, about me. That's the question we should ask. We should reflect, do a self-analysis, come to the cross as we sang about this morning, and let the cross reflect any uncleanliness, any unrighteousness, any imperfection, any log that we have consolidated and compromised in our lives and walked around as if we're pretending it doesn't exist when the reality is it does. No matter what pretense, no matter how good at games you are, chances are everyone around you knows it exists. Because most of us are really bad at acting. Because I'm convinced that true disciples cannot walk around with this in their lives and live the lives that we're supposed to live. So what are we supposed to do? What does it say? Walk away. Let's pray. Good morning. It's an exciting day today for Parker and his family. And if you're with the Parker family today, would you stand? I see a bunch of you in the back back there. Look out there, Parker. All those people have come to watch you be baptized today. If you have had him in your nursery or you've had him in life group, will you stand? You're a part of this as well. Anybody here with that group? All right. And uh, for all of you who will have him, 
in the future at some point will you stand with this family and let's recognize his commitment to follow christ today and let's rejoice with this decision to be publicly baptized and declare his faith this is a great opportunity for us as we watch this young man profess his faith we talked about it a little while ago he said you know me i said i sure do you're parker i said it's, it's bad when the principal and the pastor both know your name but i said you know what i was like that when i was a little boy and i turned out to be the pastor what do you think about that? And he went, woohoo! So uh, you never know how that's going to turn out. But Parker, we're excited about your desire to follow Christ today. Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus and accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes? It's my privilege to baptize you now, my brother, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Bearing with Christ in his death to walk with Christ in the power of his resurrection. Amen.